Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee. Thank you all for joining us for season three of the podcast. And to kick us off, we've got a great interview that actually builds off of an episode that we had last season in which we brought some folks in from the railroad industry to give their perspective on some of the key issues the industry was facing. But today, we're actually going to pivot and hear from railroad consumers. Our guest for the episode is Chris John, president and CEO of the American Chemistry Council. Chris has got a long history in the field before coming to the Chemistry Council, or ACC. He served as president and CEO of the Fertilizer Institute. Prior to that, he was president of the National Association of Chemical Distributors. I particularly appreciate the fact that he, like me, is a fellow Senate snob, having worked for (laughs) Senator Craig Thomas of Wyoming. Chris, thank you for joining us on the Plugged In Podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. We did do an episode last season in which we brought in some folks from the railroad industry to kind of give their perspective and views on some of the, the burning public policy issues before them. And we got a lot of feedback from the episode. A ton of people tuned into it. And some of the feedback we got was from rail customers uh, who wanted to be able to present their side of the story. So maybe we start there and just kind of get your take on where things stand today on these critical railroad issues. Yeah, so it's state of play today is that we're very concerned about the service that we're getting from railroads. Freight rail is critical to ACC's members and chemical manufacturing in general. We're in fact one of the largest freight rail customers. So we shipped over 2 million carloads last year. And the chemical industry, as you well know, Neil, is expanding significantly in the United States. We've invested over $200 billion in the past decade and 350 projects here in the United States. It's a great success story, a growth story, an export story. So our shipping needs are growing. And we're going to need the railroads to, frankly, do a better job of providing service to our members if we're going to continue to grow and succeed against our international competition. So as you might expect, this being Washington, we've got some suggestions about how they might be able to go about that. For our listeners who may not immediately associate the chemical industry and railroads and the nexus, can you just, you know, in a, in a very high level, simple way, just explain why rail is so important? So rail is tremendously important, as I said, you know, about 2 million carloads, about 20% of what we ship goes by rail. The typical tank car is the equivalent of putting four trucks on the road. So it can be far more efficient to move product by rail. It's also safer to move product by rail. So we're very invested in the success of railroads and would love to give them more business as we continue to expand in the United States. So they're, you know, they're a vital form of transportation and our members move their product in bulk. And so that's why they need need those big tank cars that you see going by when you're driving down the road. And so uh, we're, as I said, very vested in their success and hopeful that they can improve their service going forward. So you're invested in their success, hope they can improve their service. I guess, you know, what What are some of the, the problems that chemical manufacturers are experiencing and, and how are these challenges impacting? You know, we're really, as you well know, still in a supply chain crisis and that's got multiple factors in play there, but our members have already experienced 
significant freight rail issues for years. And now when you put the pandemic, you put the recent threatened rail strike, which even though it did not happen, had a significant impact on our members. And this comes after years of railroads cutting workers, closing rail yards, taking locomotives out of service. And Neil, the, the real impact here is, is that it's gutted network resilience. So we've got service disruptions that are more frequent, they're more severe, they're longer lasting. So we've surveyed our members three times in the past year, and each time they've reported that freight rail service has gotten worse, which has forced them to curtail production, explore other modes of transportation. In some cases, they have to add rail cars to their fleets, and all this is tremendously expensive. So at a time of high inflation, chemical manufacturing being the central science, being the beginning of the manufacturing supply chain, it has a significant impact on inflation, and that ripples throughout the entire value chain. So it's, it's a big deal, not just to us and our members, but frankly, American consumers. So obviously, the economic situation today, dealing with inflation and, and the inflationary pressure that Americans are feeling, dealing with these complex supply chain issues. But you did mention this is something that's been ongoing for a while. Early on in my career, I did a brief stint with the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. And back then, we were part of a coalition called CURE. I believe it was Consumers Unified for Rail Equity or something to that effect. And at that time, and uh, this was the mid-2000s, we were pushing reforms to the surface Transportation Board, as well as legislation dealing with the railroads exemption from antitrust laws. Full disclosure, you know, it's been about a decade plus since I've worked <laughs> on these issues. I've kind of lost touch with them. Um, have we seen what, much movement since when I worked on these issues in the mid 2000s or was I completely ineffective in my efforts back then? So, Neil, I'm going to give you credit for setting the table for the Surface Transportation Board reform bill that passed probably six or seven years ago now. It's, it's been a while, but there was a significant reform, which we supported. Here has now been replaced by the Rail Shipper Coalition. And that really set the table. It was the first time that anything had happened since the Staggers Act had passed in 1980. The challenge and the problem is, even with those reforms, the regulatory regime at STB and the policy environment has not kept up with the shipping environment. So back, all the way back to 1980, you know, we had a bunch of railroads, they were really struggling financially, and they were deregulated so that they could better compete and better survive and better serve their customers. And that happened. It was a phenomenal success. And in fact, it was too good because right now, Neil, we've got four railroads that have 90% of the traffic. And what that creates is a situation where our members, chemical shippers, people who ship energy, people who ship agricultural products, whether it's fertilizer, grain, et cetera, about three quarters of those customers are captive shippers. I know this is getting a little wonky maybe for your listeners, but a captive shipper means you only have one railroad that serves you. So it's essentially a monopoly. And at best, you have two railroads that serve you. But most of our members, like I said, three quarters of them only have one choice of shipper. So that's how the railroads get away with not in investing in their people. They're woefully short of employees, not investing in their rail yards. And that results in terrible service for our customers, of our members. And their only recourse, literally their only recourse is to go to the surface Transportation Board. And so there are a number of issues pending before STB, things like final offer rate review, things like reciprocal switching. Again, that might make your listeners fall asleep, but it's really important for us to achieve the promise of the STB reform bill, as well as the original Staggers Act. Happy to go deeper if you're interested in that. 
Well, yeah, definitely. But I think for the listeners, I want to keep it a little bit high level because we are getting into some really complicated policy here. Tell me if this is too simplistic. You've got a shipment coming from location A. You go 1,800 miles to location B at one price, and it's a competitive price because you've got multiple railroads that can, you know, you can compete against each other to drive the price down. But then the last 20 miles, there's only one railroad that services that last 20 miles and they can just charge you whatever they want. Is that is that still the, the kind of paradigm today? Your memory is good. That is still the paradigm today. That lack of competition creates an effect of monopoly for the railroads and creates tremendous problems for us to, to get that last mile. Now, there's a lot of different examples other than the ones you laid out, but you've, you've pretty much nailed it. Now, one of the things that I found interesting about this issue is in Washington today, everything's so divided. Everybody's, you know, kind of fighting against each other. But here you have a situation. You guys are the rail customers. I mean, you depend on them. They depend on you all. Is that kind of awkward being in the situation where you're you're tussling with the railroads at the STB when you guys kind of have this co-beneficial relationship? That's exactly right. And so it's an awkward situation where the customer isn't always right. That's what we've learned, right? Is that's supposed to be the case. And because of the lack of competition, there's no recourse and you're in this difficult situation where the railroad will tell you, hey, we don't know when you're going to get that shipment. We know you paid through the nose. And just to give you an example of that over the past decade, when the difference between competitive rail rates and non-competitive rail rates is about 230%. And the reason for it is because they can. They don't have to compete, and so they can charge you basically anything they want to use their service. There's no other industry in the United States where that's true. Now, Neil, you know a lot more about the energy space and regulated utilities, but there's no other competitive market where I'm aware that this happens. Yeah, no, thank you uh, for, for raising that. This is an energy-focused podcast, and you know, kind of want to focus on the energy component of this. So this actually did come up a little bit during my tenure at FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. We had some utilities raise concerns, uh, both co-ops and investor-owned utilities, munis, about reliability. Now, at the time, they were focused on coal shipments. They were worried that, in some instances, their coal piles were dwindling, and they didn't have confidence that they could get competitive rail service out of the Powder River basin to deliver the coal on time. And that might lead to reliability issues. And they were asking if this was something that FERC could intervene in. We examined it. I think staff came to the conclusion that legally, you know, the nexus for us to issue a FERC order in that regard was going to be tricky. But can you talk about the nexus of energy beyond coal shipments, chemical industry, natural gas industry? How should the energy industry be thinking about this underlying dynamic with railroads? Really smart question. It's And it's, it's tremendously important. So at the top of the pod here, we talked about the tremendous expansion of the business of chemistry over the past decade here in the United States. And that is in large part due to the shale gas revolution. And that's enabled the business of chemistry to grow because we use natural gas as a feedstock. And so that allows us to compete against anyone in the world. And so when you talk about the ability for us to continue to grow and expand and onshore things that everybody agrees we should be doing here, electric vehicle batteries, semiconductors, alternative sources of energy, all of those things, Neil, have a component of chemistry to them. And that's why it's, again, the central science. But if we can't get the raw materials we need to manufacture those and then get them to our customers who then make the semiconductors, who make the electric vehicle batteries, again, that creates supply chain problems. That's why you can't get cars. It creates inflation. 
and it dampens Americans' competitiveness on the global stage. So this issue is tremendously important to the energy space and really to all American consumers. Now, you mentioned the railroad labor dispute earlier. I got to tell you, as somebody who I think tries to stay on top of what's going on in the public policy sphere, this snuck up on me. I had no idea this was taking place. And it wasn't until the end when it looked like there might be a strike that I and others kind of recognize how big of a deal this was. Can you kind of give your perspective on what your members and industry were were kind of feeling as these negotiations were taking place? And now that there has been a resolution, does that put these issues to rest or are there other problems that still need to be addressed? There are structural systemic problems that remain to be addressed. So we're very pleased that a deal was reached and salute both the unions and the railroads for coming to that agreement. Again, we rely on them to be successful in the global market. And we're very happy that there was not a severe disruption because that would have been catastrophic. However, I will tell you, so that deal was reached. The deadline was midnight on Thursday. They reached a deadline on uh, earlier in the day on Thursday. They stopped accepting shipments from the chemical industry on Monday. And so we were impacted and we were told the Friday before that that would happen. And so we're still dealing with the ripple effects more than a week later. It will take quite a while to work through the system. So that's one piece. We were already impacted even though the strike didn't happen. The second piece, as I told you, the service the railroads have provided has been terrible for the last several years and uh, has been a challenge since, you know, you were working on it before. And so we've got structural underinvestment in the rail industry that needs to be addressed. We put forward uh, both ideas in Congress as well as at the STB that will help address that going forward. So we are very pleased that the strike didn't happen. But in all things politics, as Neil, as you know, Never let a good crisis go to waste. And the fact that this got so much attention is a good opportunity for Congress and for the SDB to take action on these issues. Yeah. So speaking of that, like my next question, why specifically does Congress need to get involved and, and what should they do? This sounds more like a, a regulatory issue, but what, what's Congress's role here? Yeah. So there's a there's a significant regulatory role, certainly. And and the SDB has taken incremental steps to address that. There's more transparency in the system. They're getting more information, which will help them make better decisions about service disruptions and freight rail emergencies. But there's also some legislation pending in Congress. I don't know if we'll get that to the finish line this year, given the congressional calendar, but it would provide some more resources, Neil, to the SCB so that they have the people and the information they need to make intelligent decisions. But it would also require the freight, freight railroads to do a better job of addressing service delays and providing more information to shippers about their products and where they are in the network. And so, you know, what we're asking for, frankly, here is just incremental progress. You know, our friends at the railroads would argue we want to re-regulate the industry. Anything but. That's not at all what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is, one, create some transparency, and two, create competition. Competition drives the American economy, and it drives investment, and that's what we're looking for in the rail. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that listeners fully appreciate this. So, you know, I think there's an assumption because we see railroads everywhere that there must be a ton of railroad companies out, out there. But, you know, I think what confuses it, there are these short-line railroads. So when you say that, you know, there's only a handful of companies here, you're talking about the big long haul railroads, not the short lines, right? And how many of these big railroad companies are left? 
So there are seven what are called class one railroads, only seven. And of that, four of them control 90% of the rail traffic. So it's really four companies. Of those seven, two of them are actually looking to merge. The proposal right now that to make that even more consolidated going forward. Again, you look at the rest of the American competitive economy, that's not what drives American success. And we're looking to create some more competition as envisioned by the Stagers Act that passed in 1980. So one of the things that I recall dealing with when I worked on this issue was, I think back then, you know, there were only a couple of industries that were exempt from antitrust laws. And the two that stuck out to me were railroads and Major League Baseball. And both were seen as kind of like mom and apple pie and Americana. And look, I get it. I understand why a lot of politicians, regardless of their party affiliation, Republican and Democrat, railroads are kind of, you know, there's this sentimental value there and politicians don't want to hurt the railroads. Now, how much of that is a challenge for your industry, which is just trying to work some specific things out with your providers, but you're dealing with really an iconic industry. Oh, absolutely. It is, you know, railroad is part of the history of America, right? And we don't want to damage that. We don't want to change that. We want them to be successful. We want them to get more of their business, but they have to earn more of our business. And they have to do that by investing more, by being more efficient and taking actions that will make sure that we don't continue to have a supply chain crisis in this country. So you're right. It is motherhood and apple pie. And we're all for it. We're, we're, we're for all of it. We just need to work a little bit better. I want to pivot a little bit. Again, this is a very energy-themed podcast. Obviously, the, the rail issue and the consumer issue is a critical one, and I appreciate you coming on to give the other side to the interview we had last season. I want to talk a little bit more about you know kind of what we're facing today in energy markets, particularly around natural gas and high natural gas prices currently. When I was in the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, one of the things that I'm proud of is that we better aligned and streamlined our process for evaluating and certificating applications for liquefied natural gas export facilities. I firmly believe that LNG exports could play an important role in U.S. economic growth, geopolitically in giving our allies an alternative to Russian gas, and from a climate perspective, clean U.S. LNG displacing dirtier forms of energy around the world with lower global carbon emissions. But obviously, there's a domestic component to this. If the forward price curve for natural gas goes up too high, it hurts domestic manufacturers who need natural gas as a feedstock like the chemical industry. Can you kind of speak to where things stand in the industry today, obviously, in a high natural gas price environment regarding LNG exports? I know some in the industry were opposed maybe about a decade ago, but it seemed like we had such a robust and abundant domestic supply of gas that perhaps that ameliorated some of the concerns that people in the chemical industry had. Can you just kind of give our uh, listeners an updated report on, on the status of this world in 2022? Energy policy is tremendously important to our members. And as you said, high price of natural gas in this country, not quite the highest ever, but pretty close. And look, we're the most efficient manufacturing industry in the world, but our feedstock prices really make a difference. Now, when you look at our competitors in Europe, obviously, given what's happening in the world right now, they're facing an existential crisis as far as the price of energy goes. So we're still competitive at this high rate right now. But energy policy, from our perspective, needs to be focused on an all of the above approach. We're for everything. So we're for natural gas production. We're for permitting and distribution of that gas. 
We're for nuclear, modular nuclear, hydrogen, carbon capture utilization and storage. Any Every brand of energy, we're for it. And guess what? The business of chemistry makes that energy production clean. Our members are investing tremendously amounts of money in carbon capture technologies, in hydrogen technologies, in next generation technologies that will address the emissions from that energy. So we ought to take advantage of the energy dominance we have and extend it. And the business of chemistry will help make sure that we reduce those greenhouse gas emissions as much as possible. Now, as far as LNG goes, our perspective, generally speaking, and as you said, our members have different views on this subject, but kind of to bottom line it is our members believe we ought to take advantage of that natural gas that we have here in the United States. We ought to support our allies and we ought to be able to have those LNG exports as long as we continue to produce and have those permits and distribute that gas here in the United States so we can take advantage of those abundant supplies. If we don't do that, and if we restrict our access to that, well, then we have a problem. And so that's where the rub lies. So, you know, look, we're all for supporting our allies and we should do that, but we should make sure that we're taking care of business here at home too. Well, Chris, really appreciate your perspective. Really appreciate you coming on the Plugged In Podcast. Here on the podcast, as I mentioned at the onset, we we like to have substantive discussions that delve into serious issues, but also kind of keep it light and get to know our guests on a more personal level. So we like to close with something personal. I noted in your background, you're a former Senate staffer. You know, you went to Columbia and the University of Maryland. Anything you want to highlight from our listeners so they can get to know Chris on a personal level, whether it be sports or family or old Senate stories. Let's wrap up the episode with something fun. Happy to do it. We'll maybe have to go offline to have the old Senate stories. We'll, we'll leave that for another day. But uh, <laughs> so I'm originally from Wyoming. And like all people in Wyoming, I decided to go to college in New York City. The truth be told, it was to play baseball. And after that, I came down to work for my then congressman, then became a senator. And one of those D.C. stories, Neil, where I came to D.C. trying to make a difference in the world, worked on Capitol Hill for 10 years, didn't know what the heck these trade association things were, and then figured out when I got into them that this is actually what I was born to do. And I'm thrilled to represent our members. I'm thrilled to work here in D.C., in the policy space. And um, perhaps a more personal note, avid sports fan, all sports, but this being football season, I am a diehard Pittsburgh Steelers fan, six-time Super Bowl champion. All right, I gotta, I gotta close with the most controversial question I could ask. Is it already picket time? Are we done oh with the Mitchell Trubisky experiment? Yeah, the Mitchell Trubisky experience is probably coming to a close pretty soon. It's not all his fault. And as we all know, quarterback is the hardest position in all sports to play. It's not all on his shoulders, but things don't get better quickly. The future is now. I love it. Chris John, thank you so much for joining the Plugged In Podcast. Thank you, Neil. Thanks so much again for listening to Season 3 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and by subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter, written by me, Brianne Depish, and my co-author, Jeremy Beeman. 